The Perfect Ten. With Steve Allen, voice of the NRL and six-time Radio Award winner. Yeah, welcome to another edition of The Perfect Ten. And before lockdown in Greater Sydney, I caught up with one of my heroes, ultra-marathon legend, Pat Farmer. It's a fairly well-kept secret that Pat's been living on the Central Coast in a cosy little nook in Copacabana for the last couple of years. He competed in the race that captivated the nation, the Sydney to Melbourne Ultra Marathon, made famous by Cliffy Young and also Yanis Kouros. He's done races right around the world, but one that stands out for me is the run around Australia for the Centenary of Federation, 14,000 kilometres in just under 200 days. Let's relive the start of that incredible run. It's going to be a great celebration, the Centenary of Federation, and this is a special and particularly Australian way uh, of commencing those celebrations. I've set out to run 217 days, approximately 70 k's a day. I will run 14,500 kilometres by the time my journey's ended. But in doing so, I would have the rare opportunity of linking the whole of Australia. He's also run across deserts, including the Simpson, and holds numerous records. And he did the pole to pole. Now this is staggering. One man, 20 million steps, or 21,000 kilometres to be exact. He's raised millions for charity, including the Red Cross, and he was also the member for the federal seat of MacArthur in Sydney's West. And now there's a brand new run. He assures me it's definitely going ahead, despite the lockdown in Greater Sydney and also parts of New South Wales. It's called 1,000 Miles to Light, from Broken Hill to Byron Bay. And he's competing against a team from the USA. Just before we get to Pat Farmer, The Perfect Ten, as always, brought to you by Robson Civil Projects. Now, earlier this year, we told you about an amazing project at Erskine Park in Sydney's West. The video is out now. It's been filmed by Stephen Mylonis and stars Mark Dolan, the senior project manager, a link road for the brand new Amazon in Sydney's West. The video is up and running on Robson Civil Projects' LinkedIn page and has already had around 4,000 views. So we'll make sure we link that to our Perfect 10 Facebook page. I've got to say, I'm super stoked. The Olympics are finally underway. So many athletes I'm looking forward to watching, including Lockie Tame, Riley Fitzsimmons, and one of my favourites, Nicola McDermott and her coach, Matt Horsnell. I'll play some audio later in the show from our podcast in March 2020, where Nicola predicted she'd reshape high jump in Australia. And she's certainly done that in the last 12 months. Right now, though, let's get to our feature guest, a standing ovation for the absolute legend of ultramarathon running, Pat Farmer AM. Welcome to The Perfect Ten. Yeah, thanks very much, Steve. Really appreciate it. It's nice to be here. It's nice to be able to uh, chat about some of the things I've done in the past and hopefully inspire some of the champions of, of the future. Oh, I tell you, talk about inspirational. Uh, that is you. And I couldn't believe when I caught up with you for MBN TV that you have been based on the Central Coast for a couple of years, just flying under the radar here. <laughs> yeah, I think I saw you down at Mitre 10 hardware store. <laughs> I went in there to buy a shovel for my daughter who just who moved up the coast here as well, a shovel and a few other bits and pieces for her place. Yeah, look, mate, it's a wonderful place to be. We're still in a stone's throw away from Sydney, of course, so you've got the big smoke there, but it's, it's wonderful to have a bit more of a relaxed lifestyle around here. And also some of the most magnificent running tracks around the uh, around the world, as far as I'm concerned. You know, I go for that run uh, there out through Budai National Park, uh, and I do that most mornings. And uh, I, I pinch myself at the beauty of uh, both the bay on one side and the coastline on the other side. Hey, what's a lazy run look like for you? Oh, it's a it's a, it's a gentle twenty kilometres, just nice and easy. Okay, on this podcast, can we go all the way back to the beginning? Where do we pick up your story? <laughs> well, I was born in Piermont. <laughs> no, we won't go that far back. But basically, um, I suppose the the one thing that stands out most is, is a defining moment in my in my life when I decided 
to take up running. And it was really the running that's changed my life. Uh, and that was done by another amazing character that most of your listeners will know, and that was Cliff Young. Cliff Young was an inspiration to a nation, not because he was the most eloquent speaker, not because he was the greatest runner on the face of the planet, just because he was an ordinary, simple human being that saw a goal in front of him and didn't give up until he achieved it. Uh, so he won the Sydney to Melbourne race the first year that it was held, and that's what really stamped uh, his authority on ultra running here in Australia and also really revitalised the whole scene uh, worldwide. Uh, and I was just an apprentice motor mechanic standing on the side of the road at a garage at Granville, a mobile garage at Granville and all the Westfield runners ran past. They looked like great Olympic athletes. They had legs on them like racehorses. They were they were strong. They were fast. They looked good. They were all suntanned. They were, they were just magnificent-looking athletes, as all athletes look. And then, of course... Cliffy comes shuffling at the back of the field, and I'll never forget my my boss telling me about how wonderful these athletes were that they could run day and night, night and day until they made it all the way the thousand kilometres down to Melbourne. And then I saw Cliffy, and I said, "What? You must be joking, that guy too." And he said, "Yes." He said, "That's Cliff Young. He trains in gum boots on his hundred acre property down in Colac, Victoria. He runs uh, a marathon every single day." Uh, and he herds up his cattle in gumboots. I said, you must be kidding. I said, if he makes it to the end of Woodville Road, I will eat my overalls. <laughs> i got to tell you, <laughs> they didn't taste too good because not only did he make it all the way to Woodville Road, or the end of it, he made it all the way down through the New South Wales-Victorian border there around areas like Nimnibel and, and uh, Olbost and then on into Doncaster in Victoria to win the first Sydney to Melbourne Ultramarathon and inspire a nation and show them that Age is no barrier. Doesn't matter how young you are, how old you are, you just got to have the fire in your heart. You said that most of my audience will know Cliffy Young. Uh, you're assuming that they're all <laughs> demographic that's 50 plus. If anyone hasn't seen Cliffy Young, go and watch the videos. So for all of your, yeah, well, perhaps your demographic of listeners then, <laughs> uh, um, let me just say, go, imagine your grandmother or your grandfather <laughs> running 1,000 kilometres in one of the toughest races on earth and winning. And then you start to get the gravity of what this man was all about and the tenacity and uh, his ability. And then, Pat, the legendary runner Giannis Kouros comes out to do the event. Tell us about that. Uh, Giannis came on the scene a little bit later. Giannis was was uh, a Greek runner. Uh, what happened was the first couple of years, the run was only uh, Australian runners and New Zealand runners. And then, of course, it opened up the field to the world because this race had such notoriety. It had $60,000 first prize money uh, and it was um, it was you know, it was the pinnacle of ultra running throughout the world at that point in time. And so people came from all over the world to compete in it, French, uh, people from Hong Kong, people from all throughout Asia. Uh, of course, uh, the Germans were here, uh, the English were here. Eleanor Adams was the first woman to uh, to win the women's category of that race and she actually finished third overall. Uh, I, and I was crewing for her at that stage a couple of years later on. But Giannis came on the scene and he beat everybody by 20 24 hours, which was completely unseen. And before Giannis came on the scene from Greece, uh, Giannis uh, um, showed up and everybody thought, if you just finish the 1,000 kilometres, then you'll be in the placings. And that's the way it was. Giannis was the first person to actually really race hard and fast. And he was running, you know, he ran the first 54 hours without a blink of sleep. And then, then his crew sat him in a, a, an auto bin full of ice water and ice in the middle of the night uh, until the swelling went down in his legs and lower body. And then they they put him in the back of the support vehicle where he sat there for the next 20 minutes and he meditated. And then he got back out on the road and did exactly the same thing over again. 54 hours without sleep, picture it. And he was punching out 13, 14 K an hour. Yeah, that, that is remarkable. Uh, I mean, my favourite runners of all time, apart from yourself, are like 
Elga Rouge and Gebra Selassie. Yeah. But is Giannis Kouros, is he the greatest marathon runner to ever live? Uh, yeah, look, I'll tell you something interesting about Giannis. The whole marathon, if anybody knows the history of the marathon, kicked off in Greece and it was really not the marathon distance that we know today. That Olympic distance has been shortened dramatically from where it was. It used to be uh, taken off the the, st- the distance of um, uh, Sparta, to, uh, Sparta to Athens, uh, Athens to Sparta. And so the distance was a couple of hundred kilometres. I think it was around about 260 k's back in the day when Giannis ran it and, and of course, when Pheidippides ran it, which was where the marathon began. Uh, and so Pheidippides was the Greek legend that the marathon was named after. Oh, sorry, it finished a, a marathon. And so what happened was as time went on, the Greek government wanted to work out, could anybody actually run that distance? Could anybody actually clamber over the top of those mountains and get a message from from the coastline all the way through into Marathon to let people know that the Romans were invading and that they needed to pick up arms and defend the, the country against them, which is exactly what Pheidippides did, and he fell at the feet of his commanders uh, and, and died. And so that's why where the legend was born. Giannis showed up on the scene for the first race that they ever had, and they disqualified him because he finished the race and they were still setting up... <laughs> They were still setting up the event on the road as it was going on, the barriers and, and so forth, and he'd finished. And they said nobody could possibly finish it within that time. So they disqualified him and humiliated him, and he came back the next year and did the same thing again, only this time they acknowledged him for the great athlete that he was. Hey, I want to talk about that, uh, about your friendship with him, but you said to me a moment ago before we came on the air that you were pretty much told by people you wouldn't amount to much. Can, yeah. you, can you elaborate on that for well, us? Well, I think it's just pretty typical of, you know, a lot of young boys. Uh, you know, you, if you listen to the rhetoric when you're growing up, you know, everybody says to you, you you're no good at this, you're no good at that, you're not going to amount to anything much. And especially in my case, and to some degree that may have been true, I was a little bit of a troublemaker, I was a bit of a free spirit when I was young and so I didn't like conformity and I didn't like sort of uh, packing down and, and just falling into line with everybody else and so I wasn't the greatest student in the world and consequently people perceive that as being uh, um, not real bright and also uh, not having the ability to follow anything through or to succeed at anything so everybody wrote me off. And in fact, they're the sorts of um, qualities of a spirited horse, to be quite honest with you. And if you don't break that spirit, but if you nurture it along and you train it and you educate it the right way, then that, and you don't lose that spirit, that horse can achieve anything. And that's what I showed later on in life. When I was inspired by Cliff Young, I was able to turn everybody's opinions around, really make something out of myself. And it was in later years that I actually went back to education and actually completed a master's of business. I've gone on to, I've fulfilled my my course of becoming a motor mechanic, which I did. Uh, I've run businesses and now I run running businesses and and have raced all over the world, uh, competed all over the world, uh, done the marketing, the media and the the PR for those events and the organisation for the whole things and continue to do so right to this very day. Yeah, you know, Pat, I've got a feeling it's reverse psychology. The intestinal fortitude you had, you began, well, I'm going to show you. But I had plenty of people say the same. You're not yeah. going to amount to anything. Well, there, there is a bit of that, but I will take you back to one moment in time, and that was, so I saw Cliff Young finish the Sydney to Melbourne race, and the transition for me was that my boss was so impressed with Cliff Young uh, and everybody around me was so impressed with him that I decided I wanted to be like him. And so I made up my mind I was going to compete in that race. And what actually happened was... I rang up the organisers and I said, how do I qualify for this race? And they said, well, you know, there's many different qualifiers. What sort of experience do you have? And I said, well, what do you mean? They said, how many marathons have you run? I said, I haven't run any. They said, how many ultra marathons have you run? I said, I haven't done any. They said, "Uh, are fun runs? And I said, oh, none yet. And so they hung up the phone on me and then that was when I showed my tenacity because I rang back and rang back and rang back until they would give me the answers. And the answer was that there was numerous 
numerous races around the country, uh, which I competed in most of them, to, and I failed many, many times. And then came this one race, a 24-hour track race at Henley Oval at Botany in New South Wales, and I was running around this beautiful synthetic track uh, with 30 other hopefuls that were trying to compete in this event. Uh, and we took off, and I took off, and I started running with them. I had my family as my crew, my eldest brother, who who was my greatest support, but knew nothing about running on the sideline. Uh, and as I ran around the course lapping everybody, I thought to myself, this is such an easy thing to do. I should have been doing this earlier. I was way ahead after five hours, uh, ahead of all the other runners. I, the scoreboard was put up there and there was my name up in lights and I thought this was what I was destined for. About two laps later, I collapsed on the <laughs> ground and my brother came out to me. He said, what, what's the matter? What are you doing? I said, I don't know, Bern. I'm feeling dizzy and I'm feeling a little bit sick and tired. I said, I don't know what's going on. I can't think straight and everything. And he said, well, what do you think it might be? I said, I can't figure it out. I said, but I have been watching the other runners. They've been having something to drink and something to eat. Maybe I should have a drink after five hours are running my backside off. <laughs> and he said, well, what do you want? I said, and I, of course, I knew nothing about the whole business. And I said, get me a can of Coke and a hamburger. <laughs> and that's exactly what he did. I wolfed it down, did another couple of laps, and then everything that went down came back up again. I ended up on the side of the track and I just lay there for another couple of hours until the race organisers took me, pulled me off the track and on a left, le- left me off the <laughs> side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And threw a bucket of ice over my head. I got to my feet, I staggered forward, I finished the 24 hours because I finished everything I've ever started and at the end of it I collapsed on the ground, St John's Ambulance put intravenous in my arm, all the other runners were walking past me bagging the living daylights out of me and then... This one guy came up to me, said, Pat, my name's Mike Agostini. He said, I'm an ex-Olympic runner from Trinidad and I've been uh, given the job of running the Westfield runner. He said, I heard from your crew overnight that you've never run before in your life. Is that true? And I said, yes. And he said, what, you've never run in an organised race? I said, no. He said, really? And he said, you just ran 124 kilometres in 24 hours. And I said, yeah, it wasn't enough. You know, I had to do 160. I'm sorry about that. And he said, no, no, no. He said... He said, you know what? He said, I think you've got what it takes to become a great ultra marathon runner. Not a good ultra marathon runner. He could have turned around and he could have said, look, I think you might make it. Just go away and try a little bit harder and stick at it in a few years. You'll be all right. He said, I think you've got what it takes to become a great ultra marathon runner. And that turned on a light inside my soul that has been lit ever since. And that was the catalyst to me taking up distance running and being successful at it. Wow. What a great story. And what happens next? What are your recollections? When is the race? How vivid is that memory as well? Oh, yeah. Look, it's, it's, it's as if it happened only yesterday and yet I was I was just a teenager at the time. But uh, but the thing about that moment was that he identified my, my spirit and my tenacity and my ability to push beyond a pain threshold. And anybody who is a runner or an elite athlete will tell you exactly the same. Your body gives in to the pain and it's so easy to quit at that point in time. If your mind is strong enough, you can push beyond that and you can discover a whole new self within yourself. And that's what they call breaking through the wall. And when you do that, you get a second breath of of wind and you can push on and you feel like you're on cloud nine. And that's, uh, that's the euphoria that many runners experience. And so, you know, it's that that keeps bringing me back to the sport all the time. And, and you know, I'll do this till the day, the, the day that I die. What about as a race? So it's a personal struggle, but you're also part of a race. Yeah, I know. But the interesting thing about that, and I'll, tell, I'll give you a classic example. I ran across America from California, not once, but twice. And one of, one of the um, amazing things about that journey was we were doing 80 kilometres, or as the Americans like to say, 50 mile a day every single day for 64 days across America. There was 30 runners in the race from all over the world, 30 of the best. I finished second in that race and I'll never forget finishing second in that race. I did it twice. I finished fourth and second. Uh, And I'll never forget finishing second in that race, thinking to myself, I would so love to be able to smack this guy in the nose (laughs) who I'm running right (laughs) beside at this point in time, who's holding first place by only a few minutes ahead of me uh, and he's winning. But even though I was competing against him, it was entirely up to me. And this is what I love about my sport because 
I decide whether I win or whether I lose. I decide how fast I run or how much I slow down because my body tells me or my mind tells me or the circumstances tell me and that's what happens to me. So as much as if I was in a, in a boxing ring and I was able to compete against somebody and I could actually physically harm them to stop them from going any further so that I could be the winner. In this case, the only way I can actually be the winner is to physically harm myself by pushing through those thresholds. And that's why they say running is such a mental game. Having said that, you know, I'm, uh, I do, I'm doing some training here at G6 at uh, Kingcumber, uh, some boxing training with the, with the team down there and all the, all the rest of the athletes down there. I absolutely love it. So I love that competitiveness, that competitive edge. But when I get uh, the running shoes on and I have to run, it's it, the competition's all about trying to beat myself. When do you feel like, okay, you burst on the scene, but when do you feel like you're at your absolute best? When you break through those barriers, you discover this, you discover this new self within yourself and you're your nostrils are way open, you're bringing in huge volumes of oxygen, you feel great, you feel free, you're running free, you're, you're almost, it's almost like you're gliding on cloud nine. Those moments of euphoria is what every runner lives for. Uh, you have to, unfortunately, you have to go through the pain threshold to experience that, but um, it's what it's all about. It's really what it's all about and it's what I love and it's, it's discovering a new self within yourself every single time. And that's why, you know, even though I'm an old man these days, I don't see myself as an old man. I continue to do the things that I do because instead of looking at myself in the mirror and trying to pick up every uh, every wrinkle on my face or every grey hair in my head, I'm, I'm looking outwardly at the opportunities that life presents itself. I'm looking at the next horizon where I will be in the next hour or so. And that's exactly the way I tackle every race. Yeah. I think on this podcast, we've got to talk about pole to pole. I mean, it's... Sure absolutely incredible what you achieved from the North Pole to the South Pole. We've got to talk about you running in Vietnam. I know you also want to run in North Korea. We probably have to talk about the, <laughs> the Simpson well, Desert, fun, still yeah. the world record holder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, a guy attempted, a fellow attempted that a couple of years back and unfortunately he, he uh, had heart palpitations that had to be flown out by the by the um, flying doctor. He was ahead of my time after two days, which I thought was pretty phenomenal. The times he was trying to set were just, I think he just pushed way too hard. I mean, I pushed hard to set the record in the first place, but when I was listening to what he was doing, I couldn't believe it. And of course, two days into it all, he was washed up and out. So yes, I still hold that record. What was the hottest day out there? Oh, the temperatures move into excess of 50 degrees Celsius. Uh, the Simpson Desert in summer is one, uh, there and Marble Bar in Australia are two of the hottest places on earth. There's no doubt about that. Is that one of the hardest races you've ever tried to attempt? Yeah, it is. But that came about because Ron Grant and Tony Rafferty raced across the Simpson Desert many, many years earlier on from that. And Ron Graham beat Tony Rafferty. They set it in a summer month. And that was um, because a fellow came out from America to try and find the best desert runners in the world to compete in what they call Death Valley in, in the States, the Bad Water Race. Uh, and so... Um, Tony and, and uh, Ron raced, uh, Ron won the race, the rest is history and then I, uh, in a weak moment, sitting in Sydney in cold winter's day in <laughs> August, decided I wanted to get warm and why not have a, a crack at that record and I approached Ron and he said to me, he said, Pat, he said, if anyone's going to break it, it'll be you but I'll tell you this much. Two things. One, you have to do it in a summer month, the same as us. So I did it in uh, both. I did it twice and broke my own record the second time, both January and December. Uh, and so you have to do it in a summer month. And the second thing too is, if you take it lightly, it will kill you. And on both occasions, it nearly did. So oh. it, it it is a dangerous part of the world to be in. Yeah, give us the numbers. The second time around, I got challenged by a fellow whose name was Dave Taylor. He's from Wollongong down in down in New South Wales, and he challenged me. To to race across there because he wanted to break my record and then pulled out with uh, just two days to go. He pulled out of the race, citing the fact that he, he might die. 
<laughs> but that was obvious. <laughs> that was obvious to all of us. Uh, um, uh, and uh, but anyway, I was committed then, so I went out there and with the uh, support of the AIS and and the wonderful people that looked after my sports nutrition and my clothing and everything else, and the science behind the run. The second time, I was actually able to take nine hours off my existing record time, which was the time that I broke that I beat uh, Ron Grant's time by. So the record stands at. Three days, eight hours, uh, I think it's 37 minutes or 32 minutes and eight seconds. So yeah. it's around that time now, yeah. And how far is the distance? Uh, it's 379 kilometres, 1,162 sand dunes. And keep in mind, you have to do it in the summer month. Yeah, I, I wanted to know if you've got a photographic memory, if you can tell us exactly what those numbers are. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, well, I wouldn't think so, but it's it's etched into my feet, let me tell you. It was yeah. bloody hard work. Yeah. That was that was incredibly tough. The sand out there is like talcum powder. When you go up and over the top of those sand dunes, because they're all lined up from north to south and you're running from west to east, so you have to cross every single one of the sand dunes. Uh, and the, the reason for that is the way the wind blows from north to south of Australia as it comes down, so it lines all the, the sand up in, in as hills to go over. And it's like talcum powder because it's just so dry out there. And so you don't, it's not like running in the beach where the moisture holds the sand together. It just separates so easily and it gets into your nostrils, your ears, it gets into your shoes, around your feet, into your clothing, chafes every part of your body. It's just um, that red bull dust is just uh, something else altogether. How many people on Team Farmer when you do one of these events? Oh, there's usually, look, when we do this next event, um, there'll be eight runners, the Broken Hill to Byron Bay run. There's eight runners, of course, but there is something like 36 crew there, uh, which includes army personnel that will set up our camps uh, each night. They'll go ahead and set that up and then pull them down the next day while we take off. There's a race there's the race managers and uh, timekeepers. There's media people on board there. There's physiotherapists there. There's all sorts of things that uh, are people that keep us together. We're just like a pit crew and, and, and they are the people that keep us on track. What about in the early days? Oh, in the early days, there's hardly anybody, usually <laughs> family. You know, family, of course, you know, there wasn't the, the money or the support to be able to uh, employ people, especially specialists that look after your nutrition or certainly your physiotherapy needs. You just had to deal with the pain and just live with it and limp along. I want to find out about the pole to pole. That's my next question. But yeah. have you been studied scientifically? What makes you uh, such an efficient ultra marathon running machine? Uh, the Institute of Sport did some tests on me a long time ago. They also had Cliffy down there at the AIS and they had Giannis Kuris down there at the AIS as well. And then they did some more tests on me up here at uh, the college uh, which is an affiliate of it, which has moved into the now uh, Olympic Stadium at uh, Homebush, but it, it was at Lincoln originally, and that's where all the sports scientists were. And they did all sorts of muscle biopsies on me, VO2 max tests on me and all the rest of it, because and the heart atrophy tests, they wanted to know if I had a bigger heart than, than normal. They wanted to know... Bigger than Farlap? <laughs> yeah, well, it's certainly not. Uh, they wanted to know, uh, you know, my lung capacity, even even how I dealt with sleep deprivation. So I spent time in sleep rooms with electrodes on my head, monitoring my sleep patterns and all sorts of different things. So the science behind this is absolutely incredible. And it just goes to show you how proud we should all be of the AIS and the wonderful facility that that is and the science behind it all, which made us a world leader for such a long period of time and can continues to help us to be the best we can be at this point in time. But um, they did all these tests and at the end of it, they they came down to the fact that there was one, one point of difference. They realised that when they did the muscle biopsy that even though my muscles weren't as big as the AFL players, a lot of the, the footy players in, in size, the density of the muscle tissue was much higher. And so what they also found was the amount of capillaries or the free flow of oxygen, oxygenated blood through those smaller capillaries was much higher. And so consequently, I was able to get a lot more strength out of my muscles than I would have even if they were bigger muscles than what they were. And that came about because 
at a very early age, I did an incredible amount of intense aerobic exercise. And so I built these pathways for this oxygenated blood to be able to move through to the muscles. And at the end of the day, that is the fuel, the fuel for your muscles, for um, uh, especially for aerobic exercise. So that was the thing that, that I suppose helps me to this day. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about the pole to pole. <laughs> how, how does that concept come about? And the vision is unbelievable. There was a documentary made, but uh, yeah. let's pick it up and talk about that. Well, you sit in Parliament uh, for nine years <laughs> of your life and the next thing that comes to mind is how can I get as far away from this place as I possibly can? <laughs> we don't talk religion and politics <laughs> no. on, on the perfect ten. No, well, I'm sort of I'm talking about how to get out of it, not how to get into it. So, so you know, I uh, I did the run around Australia for our centenary federation. I was asked by the then Prime Minister John Howard to consider going into politics, which I did, and I was successful, and I held the seat of MacArthur for nine years. I was there, and I did my duty there, and, I, and I'd like to think I did a, a wonderful job for the people in the electorate where, that I represented because we got a lot of money poured into there, but... They just beat the Central Coast in football. Yeah, they're great, great team. So in any case, so I, so I, di- I, so I did that, but I wasn't the greatest, most eloquent speaker in Canberra. In fact, I felt Canberra was, for me, a lot of a waste of time because... Because, you know, it was for me, it was more about being grassroots in my electorate and being able to get things done on the ground. So anyway, hence that was the catalyst for me getting out, getting out of politics in the end. And so, like I said, when you've listened to people talk on every single subject multiple, multiple times on that subject, day in, day out for nine years, you want to get to somewhere that where there's a bit of silence, <laughs> where you can just be left alone with your own thoughts. And I was trying to think of deserts around the world that I could go for running and all the rest of it because I was known for desert running. And then and then I came up with this concept. I was trying, I wanted to do something that nobody had ever done before. And I looked at a, a globe and I thought to myself, you know what, nobody's ever actually run, people have run around the world and travelled the vast areas of sea by plane and then landed again and continued on. But nobody's gone north to south. And so that's where the concept came from. And with that, uh, I started planning and let me tell you, it took an incredible amount of planning to work with the South American government, the American government, the North American government, to work with the Russians as far as getting helicoptered into the North Pole was concerned, to work with guides here in Australia to be able to train, to be able to take on an event like that, to be able to drag a sled for 850 kilometres from the North Pole through to Canada and then to be able to run from on ice from the edge of the, the the ice in the South Pole, so from down at Union Glacier to hook around to Hercules Inlet and then from there on up into the South Pole itself to be able to run in snowshoes. You know, I was dragging tyres along beaches uh, <laughs> to try and simulate dragging a sled through the North Pole. I was having ice baths and spending sometimes hours in in ice baths until I was completely blue almost, just trying to acclimatise. I was doing all sorts of crazy, incredible stuff, but it was that dedication that allowed me to succeed on that journey. And um, 10 months and 13 days after I started, from I, I'm pretty sure it was the 4th of April that I started, March, April. Yes, it was 4th of April because I was supposed to start in March and we got delayed um, that I started. So 10 months and 14 days, 13 days after it, I arrived in the South Pole, uh, having travelled through uh, 14 different countries, uh, the North Pole, the South Pole and the whole of the American continent, raising funds for the International Red Cross and the Red Cross in each of those jurisdictions I ran through. It was an amazing event, one that I'll never, ever forget, especially especially going through the Darien jungle and having the support of both the Panamanian uh, and the Colombian um, army to get through there. So hence my synergies and my connections with the armies have, have been standing for a long time and I continue to work with those guys because they're the extreme of what we what we see as adventures in endurance. Yeah, after hearing that story, I just want to go and have a good lie down. Like- <laughs> <laughs> I can, look, there's so many stories within 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 that uh, on every single day or any single aspect of that. You know, I came across this brown bear up in Canada and, and I didn't know whether it was a grizzly bear or a brown bear or a black bear or whatever it was. It was a big bear that was and, – and he just – I'll never forget, you know, like I was just scared into silence. I couldn't 
I, I don't even think I breathed for a good five minutes. I was just looking at him and he was looking at me and there was just nothing. Uh, and then he just put his head down and continued to walk across the road and, and, and leave me alone. And I just will never forget that moment ever, you know. Things like that happen along the way in your life and you just think, I'm meant to do something with my life, otherwise I'd be shredded by now. And then you look at some of the footage that's just etched in, in your memory and it's when people are running with you. Like, tell us about those moments. Oh, yeah. Look, you, you can't beat... You can't beat kids coming out. Like, I was a kid on the side of the road and I was inspired by Cliffy's efforts. And you should never underestimate the power of your actions. So many people, they go about doing things, they think, oh, you know, because I'm not on TV or I'm not in the papers, I'm not on the front page of the papers or I didn't win a gold medal or this or that, you know, uh, it's not really worthwhile what I've done or what I'm doing. You should never underestimate how many people are watching you from afar when you push yourself through various boundaries and uh, um, to achieve all sorts of different goals, uh, the influence that you have on those people. And in my case, especially kids standing on the side of the road, often when I run past, I think to myself, it may just be one of these kids that will go on to do great things with their own life on into the future in their own chosen field as a result of seeing me achieve what I've set out to do. How much did you raise for the Red Cross? Uh, well, you know, not nowhere near as much as I wanted to. You know, I wanted to raise literally millions and millions of dollars. I, I think during the run itself, we raised $100,000, which was peanuts in comparison to the expense of the event. But nevertheless, but there's been money trailing into there ever since then. Every time I speak about the Red Cross, every time my, I, I sell a book, every time something happens, more money goes into the Red Cross. Uh, and there was money done in, um, uh, donated directly to the individual countries I ran through. When you said you sat in ice bars and you turned blue, did anything prepare you for what you actually went through? No. No, because it's a moment in time and until you're actually out there and you're in it, you just can't, you can't imagine the silence of the North Pole, the wind of the North Pole, which breaks the silence, the crash of, of icebergs smashing through the ice that's already underneath because all of a sudden a cold current's come through and it's frozen a bit of the ocean below that ice and it's smashed through right in front of your eyes through the ice that you're about to step on. Uh, and and being pushed around on pieces of ice like marbles in a playground, it, it's just it's just it's a different world. It's like being on Mars, you know, uh, and somehow seeing a way out of it. Uh, and you know, but but that's life. You know, it's about preparing yourself the best you possibly can, and then whatever gets thrown at you, just giving it your absolute best shot. You cannot foresee every single danger. You cannot foresee every single problem that's going to happen. All you can do is make yourself as physically fit as you possibly can and as mentally resilient. Yeah. Can you believe in 2012 you're the National Geographic Adventurer of the Year? Yeah, well, it was, it was, it's, it was a lovely tag. It was a wonderful tag to get because to be classed as an adventurer, I think that really summed up who I was. I, I still don't see myself as a runner as such. I mean, I'll go to a 5K park run. Everybody will wipe the floor with me, uh, um, you know, or a, or a half marathon or a marathon. Um, it's not until you get into the multi-day stuff that I come into my own. But um, having, having said that, I don't run for the running even, I run for the adventure and so to be given that title was really something special and to me it's like it doesn't matter whether it's on road, whether it's on bitumen, whether it's on trail, whether it's on ice, whether it's on mountains, whether it's on grass tracks, whatever it is, I just put one foot in front of the other, you know, and I go up and I go down and I go through and I go sideways. I go whatever way I can to keep moving forward, keep punching forward all the time. Hey, and, it and sounds like it. a Rocky movie. <laughs> yeah, I suppose it does. <laughs> hey, uh, I want to talk about Vietnam because I know that's incredibly special to you, but yeah. uh, just for our Perfect 10 audience, uh, you're the fastest man to run around Australia. How long does it take you to travel around the country? Oh, which country? <laughs> Australia is <laughs> a big Australia's a big country. So I think I did... Uh, I did the record, uh, yeah, I set, I set a new record and, and broke an old record. It was 14,000, 
900 kilometres by the finish of the whole thing. That included Tasmania. Because it was for the Centenary of Federation, I had to add Tasmania into it. And that was the difference between mine and Ron Grant's record. His was 13,333 kilometres. Uh, he went from Brisbane to Brisbane. Uh, I covered the same route, but I added in Tassie as well. Uh, and, I add, and, and then I had to do a little bit of extra territory up in New South Wales to support um, the cause at the time. Uh, and to finish back in Centennial Park rather than Parliament House in Canberra where I started. But um, having said that, yeah, um, so uh, six months, that one was six months and 13 days. Yeah, yeah incredible. Uh, now tell us about Vietnam. Okay, Vietnam was a great event. Vietnam, uh, the reason for Vietnam was once again to support International Red Cross, uh, but particularly in Vietnam. So many of these countries have problem with clean drinking water and clean sanitary conditions, something that we take for granted. Uh, this is why during this whole COVID crisis, just a simple thing like washing your hands seems so elementary for Australians. And yet in, in people in other countries, they don't have clean drinking water. They don't have water, excess water to be able to wash with. And they they don't have the sanitizers to be able to wash their hands properly. And consequently, many, many children die of dysentery uh, and um, diarrhea and so many other different uh, problems associated with that, the pickup bugs. Uh, in a lot of the streams, they're um, actually washing upstream the, the cattle uh uh, defecating in in the same streams that they're taking their drinking water out of, uh, and so it's a bit of an education process with all of that as well. I see it as something that I can actually influence and something I could actually change. So I needed an education campaign around that. I needed to run and get to as many people as possible, and I so I used the running uh, to get the media support to be able to get that message out to as many people as possible, and then I raised funds for them as well. You know, we set up facilities. We set up educational facilities and we gave money directly to them. Once again, uh, you know, a serious amount of money, a couple of hundred thousand dollars we, we got poured into into during the course of that event. It finished in Nam Can, started right up in the Chinese border, uh, near the Chinese border in Vietnam. So one end of the country all the way through to the other. We influenced a lot of people. We raised money, a lot of money for, for the Vietnamese Red Cross. Uh, we changed a lot of people's lives and hopefully uh, through my efforts, we may have saved a few lives as well. So that was definitely a worthwhile run. It was against a, a much younger uh, Vietnamese runner as well. He was half my age and very, very a great looking athlete, uh, a great young athlete, but 10 days in, um, he'd had enough. He couldn't um, he couldn't push on with it all. Hoi Mei was his name, he was a lovely fellow. We still remain friends through to today, uh, but he spent most of the time then after that in the support vehicle. But it was it was a, a great opportunity to race and um, great opportunity to see one once again a most beautiful country with beautiful people. How many languages would you speak? <laughs> <laughs> I don't even speak English very well. What are you talking about? <laughs> no, I, I pick up a little bit of language in each of the countries. I think it's important to try whenever you're anywhere to try and speak the language and show people that you care about them and you respect them enough to be able to do that. It's one of the reasons why I get my nose out of joint when I hear Australians going crooked, not so much these days, but, you know, 10 or 20 years ago, you would often hear Australians going off at somebody, oh, why don't they speak English? Why can't they speak English? They come over here and they can't speak the language. You know, you've only got to travel yourself and you realise how difficult it is to pick up language and then you try, but it's not easy. And, And so we're all in the learning phases and I think that we need to be more tolerant to people that speak other languages and more tolerant to other people from all over the world because unless you walk a mile in their shoes, you don't understand how tough it is for them. Yeah, great answer. Do you believe running can change the world? Yeah, absolutely it can. It's changed my world, certainly changed my world because it's opened up doors that were never never going to be opened up any other way. I've travelled to the four corners of this globe through running. Uh, I've been welcomed into people's homes, uh, incredibly rich uh, and, and powerful people uh, going right up to royalty all the way down through through to uh, all the way down through to uh, common folk that don't have electricity in their home. Uh, and I, I think all those people are exactly the same. They just have a commonality about them that they want to know about Australia. They want to know about me. They want to know about what drives me. They want to know 
because they feel it will help them be better people themselves and help them to understand themselves a little bit, little bit better as well. So I think by all of us coming together and sharing time with each other and spending time with each other and just pushing the envelope a little bit to show what we're capable of, uh, we can inspire so many people around this globe. And Pat, this is amazing news. There's a new run from the bush to the beach. You know, I've got this race, I, you know, like so many people, I was locked down in COVID and I felt so bad about uh, not being able to realise my potential or do so much and I felt like I was getting old fast, not doing anything much. And so I devised this run that would go through one state because I don't have to worry about border lockdowns then, uh, one state from Broken Hill through to Byron Bay. Uh, this run will go for 10 days. It will cover one uh, 1,000 miles. So we will run 160 kilometres a day from Broken Hill through to Byron Bay. We'll run through places like Wilcannia, Cobar, Burke, of course, Bawarana, Walgett, Moree, Warialda, Inverell, Glen Innes, Tenerfield, Lismore and on into Byron Bay. It kicks off on the 14th of August and it's going to do a number of things. One is we're going to have these message sticks and these message sticks, the race will be run in relay. There'll be four Australian runners and four American runners and we will race against each other. We've got the Army as our support network for it. So they're supplying the support vehicles. They're setting up camp for us every single night under the stars. Uh, we'll be welcomed into the towns by the mayors of those towns and hosted by those towns uh, sometimes in the evening when we're close to those towns. For the rest of the time, the Army will be looking after us and we will race Australia versus America this distance. Now, we'll hand over a baton every five kilometres and this baton is a message stick uh, that will be produced by the Aboriginal elders in Broken Hill and we will present this to the Aboriginal elders in Byron Bay and it's to signify uh, these runners that are using their footsteps to travel through the various Aboriginal nations across New South Wales. And then on top of that, we're supporting Reach Out. Reach Out is an organisation that specialises in youth mental health. And my reasons for that is, especially because of COVID, one is I had a very dear friend uh, decide to um, hang himself and, and uh, I, I don't think I'll ever get over the, the fact that he did that and none of us knew enough about what was going on in his life to be able to prevent it. Uh, and the second thing is that the statistics for 14 to 25-year-olds is more people die uh, between that age group of uh, suicide than any other cause, not car accidents, not uh, drugs, not this, not that, not cancer, not heart disease, but suicide and it can be prevented. And so I want to try and get that message through to people that we need to reach out to our young people to be an ear for them, to be available for them and to help support reach out in their work in this field to stop that needless ending of young lives like that. So we will raise funds through a virtual run that will r- coincide with this event and you can find out all about that through runningheroes.com. If you just go to Running Heroes site and look up a 1,000 miles to light, you'll be able to register for that run and you can run around your backyard or anywhere and try and match our distances and in doing so you'll be helping young people with that event. Uh, then, of course, as the run uh, pushes on through, we'll determine whether Dean Carnes is uh, better than Pat Farmer and a number of the other runners are better than the Australian runners that are competing in this event, travelling 100 miles a day uh, every single day, so 160 k's a day every single day uh, for the 10 days of this journey. Yeah, beautiful, mate. I can see how emotional you are just talking about Reach Out Australia and I'm glad that it's in the spotlight more today than it was when we were growing up. I love the fact that you've got the Indigenous communities on board how in the world did you get the military to sign yeah. off on this? Well, let me tell you, the <laughs> army uh, the army do amazing work that we don't even know about. They're just they're just there through bushfires, through floods. Uh, they've been looking after the borders as far as COVID's concerned. When we had those border lockdowns in Queensland and Victoria, and protecting our borders and trying to not not so much hold people out, but just work with people and, and get everything done right because we needed a workforce that was skilled uh, and and precise that could go into place 
at the drop of a hat, just like that, just like flicking my fingers. So, so um, the army are, are very much that. Uh, the army see this as a recruitment campaign for themselves as well. So they will call into all of those country towns and they'll show off some of their vehicles and speak to the kids in the schools as well, which is absolutely fantastic. And it's going to be a, a great opportunity for the kids in those towns. Uh, so it's a bit of a recruitment campaign and a PR campaign for the wonderful work that the army does as well. So it's nice to have these private public partnerships. So... Dean Carnez, sounds like we've got a match race, a grudge race, Australia v the USA. Huh. Uh, tell us more about your US counterpart. Well, Dean calls himself the ultramarathon man and anybody in running will know about Dean. He's been prolific with his book writing and uh, he's got a new, another new book coming out. But he's, um, you know, he's, he's a lot like me. He just loves to travel the world and compete in ultra marathons, whether it be the Greek Spartathlon or the Inca Trail or so many incredible races throughout the world. And so he was like me. He was cooped up at home, the same sort of deal with, with the guys in the States where uh, they, were, they were held back from doing anything competitive. And so when I came along with this opportunity, he he jumped at it. Uh, and we will have two female runners and two male runners in, in each of the teams. So so here in Australia, we're represented by Greta Truscott from, uh, from uh, Sydney uh, and also um, uh, Deidre Hopkins. So the gender balance is there. We've ticked off every single box as far as this run's concerned. Uh, there will be a film made about this run and KO uh, are going to run that film to 600,000 people, all of their subscribers, uh, through the um, other networks. Of course, Channel 9 are wonderful in their support of this event and we'll be dialing into the Today Show on a daily basis, keeping them up to date with everything that's going on. So there'll be a lot of publicity around this event and my plan is that this event will grow into the biggest ultramarathon in the Southern Hemisphere within three years. And my reasons for that is that I already have 16 other countries that want to compete in this event. So as soon as this one's over, I'm going to organise races in each of the states around Australia and there will be qualifying events for teams of four to qualify to be the best in their state to try and represent Australia in this event the following year against those 16 other countries. Uh, and then the winners of each of those states will compete to be the one team that does take on the world uh, in this event same time next year. So watch this space and watch this event grow and, and know that it is showcasing the best that Australia has to offer. It's helping with tourism and promotion of Australia and relations between Australia and all these other countries, but in this case, particularly Australia and America, although there will definitely be some rivalry between the two of us. Yeah, yeah. I'll ask you a little more about that in a moment. But uh, I've heard this answer before. You feel like uh, the nation was divided through COVID. That's another reason you want to do this run is to unite all Australians again. Yeah, absolutely I do. I mean, and, and people say, well, why you, Pat? You know, it's because it wasn't that long ago I did the run around Australia for our Centenary Federation. Uh, and the whole purpose of that was to link together all the states and territories and for us to reflect in the year 2000 for us to reflect on the fact that in 2001, 100 years before that, we became one nation as we know it today. One country, unlike Europe, where there were different, different countries and different borders, we were all one solid unit. And so because of this health crisis that has hit us, borders being shut, people being isolated, uh, has really hit home to to me for that purpose because, you know, I ran more than 14,000 kilometres, I spoke of functions every single evening for the Centenary Federation, showing the unity that this country had and how fortunate we are to have that unity so much better than Europe where they have different currencies in other states, where they have uh, different languages in other uh, other areas, although the Queenslanders do speak a little bit funny to all of us. Hey, hey, <laughs> hey. I'm, I'm a Queenslander, you know. <laughs> but aside from that, but aside, <laughs> aside from that, we're pretty much the same. Yeah, yeah. Hey, uh, by the way, we're going to beat America, right? Uh, are you confident? Absolutely, I'm confident. <laughs> I mean, I've got the army on my side. What are you talking about? Oh, <laughs> ah, right. A couple of checkpoints. <laughs> yeah, you bet. Hey, I think we're starting to get the wind-up from our producer. Can you believe that? So we, we may have to do a uh, part two. But There's so many other countries to talk about oh, and so absolutely. many other things to do. You're also a father of two? 
Uh, yeah, Brooke and Dylan, uh, two beautiful kids that are not kids any longer. They're, they're adults in their own right. And uh, Is that what um, you're most proud of? Oh, absolutely, without a doubt. Like, I, I, you know, my wife did all the work, but um, uh, I was very, very fortunate to, have, to be able to bring two children into the world and to be able to add that to this planet. You know, to me, that's a, a very special legacy. And for any parent, they'll tell you the same. They drive you crazy, but um, they're the, the greatest thing on this planet. Yeah. Uh, what would you say is your greatest achievement where you just kept going one foot after the other when you thought you had nothing left? Look, I'd have to say, I'd have to say, uh, I'd have to say that was really um, from some of the lessons that the running has taught me and that was to be able to pick myself up and to be able to continue on with my own life after um, my my young wife passed away many, many years ago when my children were very, very young. Uh, Brooke was uh, two years old and Dylan was 10, 10 months old. And, uh, and I'm reluctant to rehash all of that all the time, but the bottom line is it was the toughest time in my life, but it was the moment in my life where I just, it, as my wife used to say, if it has to be, it's up to me. So if it, it had to be and it was up to me. So I had to just make sure that somehow, some way, I survived. Uh, I survived that ordeal so that I could be the best father for my children and help them to be who they are today. And that I've done. I've. I feel I've done that role. So that was that was the toughest gig. Yeah, man, it's been awesome having you in the studio. Uh, I think you deserve another. You deserve <laughs> another standing O, and I, I will stand. Yes. Oh, thank you very uh, much. Mate, I've got a thousand more questions, but I think we need to leave it there on part one with uh, Pat Farmer. Can you give us the dates again? So yeah, so the, so the kick-off of the Broken Hill to Byron Bay run is the 14th of August. Uh, we'll do an official announcement on this in mid-July. I'm just trying to get all the ducks in a row as far as that's concerned, but uh, you'll hear a lot about it on mainstream media as well as uh, through podcasts such as this. Uh, and then, of course, um, the Americans are, uh, have already booked their flights. They're coming out. We've had to get special allowances for them. They will go into quarantine. They'll be in quarantine for two weeks. Uh, I've had to organise gym equipment and treadmills into their rooms to make sure, sure that they, you they sure can you're get all get of that. Well, treadmills? The, the batteries, or there mightn't be electricity <laughs> for that treadmill, but Dean's at least. Surely they can run back and forth in the room. <laughs> yeah, we'll sort them out. Anyway, but they're um, you know, they're, they're great sports for coming out and for doing this, and um, through, through them and through this event, we will promote Australia to all of America so that when our our borders uh, are opened up to the rest of the world. Uh, we will have that those American dollars coming into Australia and some great tourism from some great allies and some great friends. Uh, what's the website too if people want to donate? So you can go to, uh, just simply go to 1000milestolight.com 1000milestolight.com uh, if you go to there and of course that'll give you a link through to the Running Heroes page so you can sign up for that and compete in the virtual run that will run side by side it. and it's only called virtual because you can do it in your backyard or you can do it down the park or you can do it as part of your normal training regime uh, and try and match out times or um, run for the full 10 days like we're going to do, try and match our distances even, but get yourself together in teams of four and teach yourself that camaraderie that we will experience as well uh, and support Reach Out. It's a wonderful, wonderful charity, wonderful organisation doing some incredible work in a very, very difficult field trying to help our youth of today and the youth of tomorrow. Yeah, what an absolute legend, Pat Farmer in the studio with us. Uh, We do it all thanks to Robson Civil Projects a third-generation local business that employ hundreds, not just here on the Central Coast, but also in Sydney, right through the Hunter Valley as well. They're a legendary business, and we absolutely love their support on The Perfect Ten, Robson Civil Projects. Now, there's one thing you want to talk about definitely on part two extensively. Tell us more about that. Yeah, I'd like to tell you a lot more about the Darren Jungle and the incredible soldiers that took me through there and what that was all about. That is one of the most remote, one of the most dangerous places on earth. I certainly was when I went through there. That's where the drug runners bring a lot of their drugs and guns from South America up into Central America and were fueling a, a, a basically a war that was going on there, a drug war between the, themselves and the Mexican government. So like to tell you a little bit more about that on Into the Future, plus some more on the Broken Hill to Byron Bay. Yeah, I, I tell you, I've been watching Narcos uh, on Netflix. So, you know, that covers Colombia, covers yeah. Mexico. So, yeah, I'd love to hear that story next time you're in the studio. Pat Farmer? Thanks again, my friend. We'll catch up. You bet.
So, Pat Farmer, what an incredible life story, and that is just part one. Hey, before we go, Nicola McDermott in action in the high jump August 5. Here's a little snippet from March 2020. At the time, Nicola's PB was 1m96. Recently, at the Diamond League event in Stockholm, she soared to 201, breaking her own Australian record. Here's what she had to say about reshaping high jump in Australia. Have you got a hero in this sport? I think growing up, Blanka Vlasic, uh, 208 high jumper from Croatia, being half Croatian, the only time when we used to have dial-up internet and I would have to, you know, you'd have to take the phone off the hook in order to, to plug into the internet. We didn't have Wi-Fi for a long time at my house. Uh, the only time I ever was allowed to watch YouTube was to look at Blanka Vlasic jump. And as a kid, I would just be like, and she'd just get the clap going, she'd be dancing. Um, she was a national icon um, with my family back over in Croatia. Yeah, she, I think she's definitely someone that I still look up to and would love to jump with one day. So, Nicola McDermott, what an absolute inspiration both on and off the track. And her qualifying begins August 5 in Tokyo. Thanks once again to Robson Civil Projects. Congratulations as well to Kerry Robson, who recently celebrated 25 years and is the backbone of the operation at a third-generation company, Robson Civil Projects. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you soon.